0: Hi, this is Sean Perrin, and you're listening to episode 37 of the Clarinet podcast, the show where I discuss all that's new and neat with clarinet, with the neatest people in the industry. Today, I speak with none other than Maury Bakun, who is the president, chief instrument designer, and founder of Bakun Musical Services. Bakun, as I'm sure you're well aware is a relatively new Canadian company that started off producing just clarinet barrels and bells, but has grown to be a globally recognized manufacturing brand since the release of their first complete instrument less than a decade ago. They now proudly produce their original barrels and bells alongside mouthpieces, student and intermediate clarinets, and some of the world's most sought-after professional-level instruments. Many of these products are manufactured and assembled by hand in Burnaby, British Columbia, Canada. Their instruments are played by some of the biggest names in the industry, including the legendary Eddie Daniels, Ricardo Morales, David Schifrin, and more. In this interview, we discuss Bakun's philosophy on design, working directly with artists to customize instruments to their liking, exciting details about upcoming products, and how and why they keep their factory so impeccably clean and organized. The giveaway for this episode is by far the best yet. It's a brand new Bakun Alpha Clarinet valued at $1,075 US dollars. And I really want to thank Maury, Joel, and the whole Bakun team for such an incredible giveaway. If you'd like to win this and other items mentioned on the podcast, be sure to go to clarinet.com and enter your email address in our email subscription box. This will make sure that you're eligible to win not only this, but all upcoming items on the podcast. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, D'Addario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, D'Addario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from D'Addario Woodwinds, visit D'Addario.com woodwinds. So today I'm here on the line with Maury Bakun, who is the founder and president of Bakun Musical Services. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today, Maury. Pleasure to be with you, Sean. So many listeners will know I was out there last week, or I guess 10 days ago now, touring the Bakun facility. And I have to say I was incredibly impressed. I've never seen a place that was so clean and organized. And uh, I can actually say with confidence I would have eaten my lunch off of any surface of the building, including inside the machines. How do you guys keep it so clean and organized? It was just unbelievable.
1: Wow, I was just down there and I wouldn't have eaten my lunch off the floor.
0: <laughs> Are you sure? It was pretty clean.
1: Uh, you know, one of the things about manufacturing in the high-tech world, and a lot of the manufacturing we do uses very sophisticated modern CNC machines, is in order for them to be accurate, you have to maintain them at a very high level. And even with tooling, unless you take very good care of it, even something as simple as a tone hole cutter, if there's little nicks and burrs and things and you don't have the proper respect for it, it's very hard to achieve great results and consistent work. So, throughout our company, one of our goals is to produce instruments which are really made at a very high level and where it's a very consistent level. And so, the tooling to do that is really quite critical. Um, much like a player, if you're sloppy in a passage, the result will show it. If we're sloppy with our machines and tools, Uh, It will show it. So we do spend a reasonable amount of time. And we have a program here, basically, where a number of our staff virtually adopt a machine. So it may be the machine they're operating or a few machines are operating. And part of their daily mandate is to really look after it, both in terms of the proper maintenance, proper lubrication, cleaning, um, and everything else that would otherwise affect or impact the performance of that. Uh, machine or that tooling, as the case may be.
0: Yeah, I just was really impressed. I would have expected some sort of, you know, dust to be around for a wood manufacturing facility, but everything from where the wood was stored to where they were built to where they were shipped, I mean, it was just spotless. So thank you. Really, really impressive.
1: I'll, I'll pass that on to the staff. They really work hard. So I know that they'll appreciate that comment.
0: So when I was there, I also, um, you, you were sharing the benefits of precision engineered equipment and um, products like you were just discussing a moment ago. Um, you mentioned some sort of analogy with cars. I mean, people don't test drive 10 cars to find the one that they think feels the best for them. And, and you mentioned how this could be applied to the clarinet world with this sort of precision. Um, how, how do you feel this is so important to the clarinet community?
1: Well, one of the things about clarinets for a long time, many players will you know, comment that they've gone through dozens and I've heard cases of hundreds of instruments and they've traveled to various factories to do this and they've gone to all kinds of dealers to try many, many instruments to try and find, let's call it the one. Mm -hmm. The problem, if you find the one, let's just for an example say that you find the one and you've tested 20. One of the questions which comes up in my mind is who gets the other 19,
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Secondly, if you're testing them, in many cases you're testing them to try and find an instrument that may perform well in terms of the sealing of the pads, the venting of the keys, some basic mechanical you know, bits and pieces. And then frequently people will take whatever instrument they choose and they'll go to whoever their favorite technician is and start having all kinds of work done. Uh, and there's a few different kinds of work. One of the kinds of work is... Just normal mechanical things because perhaps things don't work well, or you want certain materials changed on keys or bumpers or whatever they would be, or pads. Um, or then there's what I would call personalizing. And personalizing is once a player gets an instrument and is familiar with it and says, Well, for me, I wish the C sharp was five cents higher. I wish that the high A for Pines of Rome, I could come in very gently and very quietly with absolute security. I wish I could play Daphnis going over the break with the sound or the timbre of the notes being completely equal or throat tones. Every player has their own set of wishes. So we start with a premise that the instrument is a designed Product. In other words, we have very carefully gone through and specified the shape of the bore, the shape of the tone holes, the undercutting, things like pad heights and, and many, many other issues. We then design tooling, which is in almost all cases custom built specifically to achieve the result we want. So whether or not it's the shape of a tone hole or a special undercutting shape. Um, We no longer use reamers in the bore. For many years, that was the standard way, and some companies still do it, of manufacturing clarinet bores. But one of the challenges is that grenadilla and coca Coca-Bola were both very hard woods. And after you've reamed a number of bores, you have to stop and sharpen the reamer. And when you sharpen the reamer, much like sharpening a knife, you have to remove metal. And when you remove metal, you actually are subtly changing the shape of the bore. Mm -hmm. So we designed a very, very intricate system using high-technology machines where our bores always have a controlled geometry. And the blades, if dulled, are replaceable blades with exactly the same geometry. It's a very high-tech system. Uh, And also, as we cut, we use uh, a very unique system of chilled air, which keeps the temperature of the wood at a very moderate level. So the wood is not going through the same trauma as it does in, um, call it, normal drilling operations or normal reaming operations. And that allows us to control the dimensions. By controlling the dimensions essentially, we get very little variation. It's not that there's none because it's a product of nature. Um, And so there may be movement, but we find we have much better control than when we've done it with traditional form-cutting tools or traditional reaming tools. Mm -hmm. Um, And having said that, same thing in terms of our posting system. The normal method of clarinet making is you screw a post into the body, then you put the machine that or a series of posts. You put the machine the clarinet joint back in the machine and at that point you're bringing metal cutters twirling around at very high speeds, typically anywhere from 2000 to 20000 rpm in contact with those metal pieces and they they then start taking and changing the shape from round to flat and drilling all the holes for springs, for screws, for rods and all of the facing geometry. Typically, as you do that, those metal parts get very hot. And, of course, they're screwed into the body, so that heat is being transferred into the wood. In our experience, not the most desirable system. So we came up with a system where we manufacture all the posts off the body, and we simply then screw them onto the body. They drop in exactly, and they're precisely located so that no cutting is done on the body.
0: Yeah, so I was actually able to see a lot of this process um- you I were. remember the, the assembling at the end there and it was just very, it was very precise. I mean, they dropped those little posts into the slots and, and they were in exactly the right position. It's, it's quite amazing, actually.
1: Well, you know, when we were young, a whole bunch of us played with Meccano sets and Lego and we really liked the way things clicked together and fit. So we tried to make a clarinet where a lot of that happened.
0: Absolutely. And you mentioned too, when I was there, uh, I was shown some sort of carbon socket. Um, or maybe Joel was showing me this actually, but a carbon socket into the, 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 the bottom part where the cork technically wasn't really necessary, but it's placed there, um, just sort of out of, out of, because people are comfortable with it. How can it be that accurate that they can't leak just with the carbon fiber fit?
1: Well, it's not just carbon fiber in the other side of that. There's titanium and titanium is a, a metal, which is, uh, extremely strong. It's used for all kinds of, of things now like uh, replacement body parts, like you would have a new knee or something. Mm, okay. Um, it, Once it's machined and it's difficult to work with, it's incredibly stable. So on the one side, on the female side of the tenon, you may have the titanium, which basically keeps it round. And then the carbon fiber on the other side uh, applied in such a way that we then machine it down. It's a proprietary system we've come up with. So when you fit them together, even if you take the cork off, the fit basically works. I kind of made it, the original one was on the concept of a flute head joint. Um, or a saxophone neck going into the body where the tenon just fit. In other words, trying to deal with the vagaries or the variations of wood. Mm -hmm. And it worked very well, but when people would look at it in the beginning, it looked so different that for some players it was kind of hard to – wrap their mind around. And some people also use the cork as a little gauge for how far they're pulling a joint. If they want to use, let's say, pull it out a millimeter or something, they use the cork channel or two millimeters uh, as a little gauge. So we then put a channel in and put a cork in, but the cork is actually superfluous in this particular case.
0: Well, it was so interesting because I picked up this in-production clarinet that was kind of in the middle of being, it wasn't even really polished yet, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And it was just sort of there. And, and Joel was like, look at this, grab that thing, put it together. What do you notice? And I was like, wow, <laughs> there's no cork on it. It's, it's just click. It was in. So. Well, you know, I think many, many
1: of the people who listen to your podcast who are clarinet players are going to be familiar with a whole bunch of tenon-related issues. One of the most common ones is you go to put your clarinet together. And you can't because it's binding. It's wood on wood. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that happens sometimes is the joint's loose and it wobbles. So things like the one-on-one connection are a problem or worse yet if your joint wobbles, it's a pretty safe bet that it's leaking air. And one of the things which I find in many, many repair shops is that they'll work on an instrument and they'll test it either using suction or an air machine. And they say, well, the joint's fine. And then they'll work on, let's say, the other joint. So they've done the upper and then they work on the lower. Or it could be the barrel. But in almost... Uh, well, I won't say in no cases, but it's very rare where I go into a shop where I see people actually test it when it's together to see whether or not the joints are leaking. Mm, yeah. And with a normal wood-to-wood connection and with cork, which is an imperfect material and that has holes and grain and all, uh, they can leak. So I always advocate that when people go into their repair shops, hopefully they use an air machine, and at the end of the process – you check the parts individually. So let's say the upper joint has one pound of leakage and the lower has one pound and the barrel should have no pounds. When you put them together and you test them, you should only have the total of what those numbers are. So if there's any extra leakage, let's say you had one pound and one pound, suddenly when you put it together, there's five pounds. Then you know that it's got to be leaking at the joints.
0: Yeah, it's something that's so hard to diagnose, I guess. But if you know that that's, that's there, you can, you can address it.
1: Well, but it's such an important part because the difference in the way the instrument plays when it's sealing between the joints are very important. The other thing that, because we are very precision oriented, we realized early on that if joints wobble or they move, then by definition, it's unlikely that the bore is going to be straight Mm -hmm. as it moves. And if the bore is not straight, that's going to impact the way the air moves through the instrument and a number of issues. So we just set out to try and design a system that we didn't have to um, rely on it kind of being in the neighborhood. We just wanted it to be precise. And, you know, one of the one of the interesting things about being uh, a relative newcomer is we're not married or tied to any particular technology or any system.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: we could simply try with... Uh, defining what we needed done to look at all the different ways to do it and then try and determine which one we thought was the best using tools and equipment as well that are available now that, that weren't available 20 years or 30 years or 50 years ago. And, and you know while we can talk about craftsmen of the past and all kinds of things, many of those people who did things beautifully by hand, first of all, it would be very difficult to reproduce them. And secondly, many of those people are not available or alive anymore.
0: So one thing I was just thinking about, actually, about this whole socket phenomenon, where where the the cork or sorry the the carbon fiber fit perfectly and stuff, you know, with bass clarinets, everyone's totally comfortable with just that metal slot. So it's odd that if we took that away on the other part of the clarinet, it would be sort of a a problem spot, I guess.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of clarinet players are not bass players. Yeah. Um, you know, we found and I experimented with metal sockets. But because of the very different rate of co- effect, the coefficient of expansion and contraction when wood is warm or cold, and the same with metal, they're quite different. The, no matter what adhesives we use or pressure fitting, and we experimented with a whole bunch of them, we found that we experienced increased cracking with metal tenons going into wood. And frequently the first tone hole on the right hand, for example, where that socket is, we were getting cracks and all kinds of things. So we looked at alternatives, and the one we came up with, um, I think, has been pretty stable. Uh, We remeasure instruments when they come back for work and, and, you know, for normal overhauls and all, all the time. And we're finding the dimensional hold, checking the bores and tone holes and all, is really very, very accurate.
0: Something else that surprised me, before we move on from... uh the manufacturer here. When I was doing my walkthrough of the wood storage area, uh, I think Joel and perhaps you were there as well, but we talked about how the pieces of wood, they're all unstained and there's no sort of uh, distinction pre-manufactured as to which ones are going to become MOBA bells or MOBA barrels or whatever, and which ones will be more student models. Like It's all the same quality of wood. Would you go into that a bit and why that's important?
1: Uh, Yeah. You know, Well, it's it's kind of ironic because, of course, we started as a very high-end manufacturer, first of all with the accessories and then with the instruments. So the original mandate of the company was not really to make student instruments or more affordable instruments. It was always to focus on, uh, originally, the artist grades of instruments and professional grades of instruments. And then as we became more popular and being used by more more, uh, artists, they started talking about their students and then... Other people, schools, and educators, and all, were contacting us uh, and dealers, and and so we moved into various price ranges. Um, I've always believed that the wood and the way that the wood is handled is just a critical and key fundamental part of how the instrument sounds. Call it the soul of the instrument, and. A lot of what we do is based on the belief that we want individual players to create the most beautiful sounds that they can. And I simply have not found um, using material other than great material that that is going to um, yield that result. So we made a decision to buy from. Um, the best suppliers we could to be extremely fussy uh, to pay the price necessary to get the very best quality of wood and we also have a very interesting policy here Um, any staff member at any point making any part, if they're not happy with the quality, has the ability on the line to reject it so in other words, pieces of wood that we're not satisfied with and as products of nature that happens regularly Mm -hmm don't end up in our instruments. Um, The reason we don't stain them is, frankly, if you have a really beautiful piece of wood, why would you want to?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: You know, I noticed that there are different manufacturers who have different policies on staining. But in almost um, every case, usually people advertise unstained wood as their very best. Yeah. So if you start staining at a lower price point presumably there's a reason and because the staining process is an additional process it takes time Uh, and there's a cost to anything you do in terms of time and manufacturing I can only assume it's because the wood is either not a very pretty piece or it has bug holes which are common or inclusions which are common or um, repairs that, you know, there's a chip, there's a crack, there's any number of things in wood as the manufacturing goes along. We, we started with a philosophy that if we don't stain, we have nowhere to hide. Mm-hmm. And we've simply, up to now, uh, maintained that. As you saw, Sean, when you went through, we have really quite a huge stock of wood, uh, we we age it naturally. We don't use any kiln drying. We don't use any sort of vacuum oil baths or any of the options to speed up that process. Um, we bring it in. We have a first initial process uh, to drill a preliminary bore uh, and round the tubes so that they can start properly seasoning. We control the environment in our manufacturing very carefully. Um, kind of for the comfort of the wood as well as frankly the comfort of the people who are here working with it. Yeah. And that wood becomes uh, the instruments that we ultimately make. Now, you probably saw when you were here both cocobolo and granadillo wood stocked. And yes. there is a there is one difference which I'll I'll sort of speak to about the wood. With the cocobolo, we buy for um the instruments pieces of wood which are quite long they're basically a meter long so one of the things we're able to do with the bolo is make what really and truly is a matched upper and lower joint because they are from exactly the same piece of wood and one of the challenges with african blackwood or grenadilla or impingo and there's a number of names it goes by is the supply of wood because it's kind of a small tree that are longer pieces is very very limited and usually is used pretty much for bass clarinet joints because of that you always pretty much have a different upper joint and a different lower joint Mm -hmm. and that's part of the reason there is more variation in some instruments is because you're dealing with two different pieces of wood imagine if you would for a second because you're a clarinet player trying to get two reeds to play the same yeah same dimensions same material but they feel and respond differently. So with a different piece of wood for the upper and lower joint, that creates a separate problem in terms of tuning and voicing potentially, and just making it feel as if it's one.
0: So uh, one one quick question though, I mean, as as far as the precision philosophy kind of goes, um, how does that affect the actual uh, individual clarinets then, as far as what you're just talking about, as far as the reeds, wouldn't it still Uh, make a difference?
1: Yeah, so we try and match the wood for the upper and the lower joint just as carefully as we can in grenadilla. Mm -hmm. And then um, put them together and then do whatever post-processing work is necessary to really try and match. Oh, I see. Uh, At that point. With the cocobolo, it's unnecessary because they're made from exactly the same piece of wood. So we even orient the grain on the cocobolo where the grain runs from top to bottom exactly as it did when it was in the tree.
0: Even the barrel on some of them is the same Yes. W- what is it not? Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. On on uh, the super series sets, they are the same. On other ones, uh, they may be, but they're not necessarily. And of course, barrels are their own whole domain because frequently, when players get the instrument, I always tell them that after they're used to the instrument for a little bit, yeah, then yeah. is a good time to try barrels or bells uh, and even other mouthpieces and really start to fine tune their setup because. Again, our philosophy is we're going to make the very best instrument we can. But the one big challenge, I think, for everyone who manufactures a a musical instrument is that hopefully every artist wants to sound the way the voice in their head tells them they want to sound. In other words, if someone says, oh, that's the sound of a buccun clarinet, I almost feel like I failed because it should be the sound of, that's the sound of you insert the name of the artist and the Mm -hmm. way they want to sound and our instrument is the tool that allows them to achieve that goal and when you're making it without the person there you can make it to a very accurate uh, predetermined specification but it's very very unlikely that you will just suddenly manufacture something where its everybody's individual and unique voice so trying the barrels and bells after you can really fine tune that once you're used to the instrument, the feel of the keys, uh, the general sense of tuning, and what it is you're trying to achieve. Added to that, the complication that the acoustic environment that people play in is so different. You know, if you go and you um, sit on stage uh, or in the audience at a hall like um, the Kennedy Center in Washington, and then the next day you go and you do the same thing in Carnegie Hall, and the day after that you go to Philadelphia, the Verizon Hall, you will find that the needs of those players to project their voice in those halls is quite unique to each one.
0: Mm-hmm. So I want to go on a little bit about this. Uh, you, you touched on it briefly already, but the um, sort of the marriage of artists, dem- I don't want to say demands, um, customization, I think you called it, and how that sort of is affected by or can be affected after the fact? Are there any sort of artist relationships or that come to mind as far as that goes? Or
1: Oh, oh sure. I think, you know, whenever I work with discerning players, and I won't even just, you know, use the word artist, but I'm going to, you know, because artist denotes that someone who is at, you know, such a high level that most people would never attain that. So I'm just going to basically speak to the fact that players who have achieved, you know, reasonable levels of proficiency, and who are really trying to be the very best players they can at various levels, all have individual um, preferences, individual quirks. Um, For an example, this is uh, something that (coughs) I can speak to from personal experience. Both my wife, who's the principal clarinet player in the Vancouver Opera, and I used to play in the orchestra together. And at one point, she was practicing, and if memory serves me, uh, it was Beethoven eight She was practicing, and there's the famous high G at the end, which everybody wants to get with precision, great intonation, and great control. And Mary was playing, and she said, "Maury, my G is sharp." And I went, "Really?" And I, you know, I was checking pads and key heights and everything else because I, you know, I was hoping while I did that she'd make a great dinner, uh, <laughs> so I spent extra time doing it. And then I said well, you know, everything looks okay, let me try it. So I picked it up with her mouthpiece, with her reed, and I played it, and the high G was about 15 cents flat. Oh. Now, acoustically, it's impossible that the instrument in sitting in our living room in two minutes could have changed to that degree.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So what it really came down to was we have a complete, and we were, we were comparing and using the same fingerings and all, And, you know, we set the tuners so that things like the tuning A and all was in the same place. What it really came down to is we have different embouchures, different interior dimensions to our oral cavity, our tongue size, and all kinds of things, and the way we utilize air. And that was really a revelatory moment for me because it it convinced me that no matter how carefully I made an instrument, I couldn't necessarily make one that would play in tune for everyone so what I wanted to do was essentially make a great starting platform which is what we've tried to achieve and in working with players which I do you know all the time now we then will individualize or personalize the instrument for their particular preferences or needs
0: it's interesting because that basically you're talking about voicing there with the note, and even if we made the intent of the voicing the exact same, it still wouldn't account for the physical differences that you just, just talked about within the player, so sure, it is super but, important.
1: Yeah, and, and everybody's different in that regard. And then the other thing is everyone uses a different mouthpiece. Some people may play an old schedule, some may play a new Van Doren, some may play a Bakun mouthpiece, they may play a Phobes mouthpiece, they may use a Wadkowski mouthpiece. All of those are worked on by different people, and have different traits, which is why people have preferences, that they say, well, gee, this one seems to work well for me. But if you choose a mouthpiece, many people will choose a mouthpiece. For example, they say, I love the sound of this, or I love the articulation. In many cases, they haven't necessarily taken account of what they're giving up to get the other thing they want. Yeah. And so after the fact... They'll come visit me or they, they'll go to their individual, whoever their high-end clarinet technician is, and say, okay, well, gee, now I can tongue really well, but I, you know, my low register sound is, is a little dull, or I want more brilliance in my left hand, or my low C, C sharp, and D don't really speak well. You know, it's a great experiment on whatever clarinet you play and whatever your, your readers or listeners are using. Just try a simple experiment, and that's play... Simple half notes in the low register going from B natural with the second finger of the right hand, play a C, play a C- sharp, and play a D, and play them as half notes. Then do the same pattern and repeat it tongue so ta-ta. and determine if the length of the articulation is the same, because I can guarantee your tongue didn't change. And if the length of the articulation is not the same. Then there's work to be done with whoever you trust to do this kind of work, to voice the instrument where it will, in fact, respond the way you need it to. So
0: and each note needs
1: to be balanced.
0: In that situation, though, like, excuse my ignorance, but if you adjust a low note like that, doesn't it make a new problem somewhere else? Or, not like, necessarily.
1: Is- it depends if you know how to do it. Um, you know, we're into an area now, it's, this is like talking about artistry and playing. You know, yeah. isn't it difficult to play Brahms 3 in the recording when, you know, the solo, that moment it comes down? Yes, but if people are really skilled at what they do, they can repeat it, and they do it very well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's the same in this kind of work. If you simply start reaming a bore without understanding all of the effects, it's a problem. If you start opening a tone hole or closing it or undercutting it, we have, for example here, dozens of shapes of undercutters, not just one straight side to achieve certain results where we may want to adjust the twelfths unequally, the upper or the lower more Mm -hmm. or tools for voicing to do the same thing. So, there are certain acoustic limitations where, you know, if you're... I talked about low B for an example, so let's say your low B is thirty cents flat and the F sharp, which is the twelfth above, is thirty cents the other way, you have a problem. And yeah. that problem may not be resolvable at all, or certainly not easily. But in most cases, you're only talking about a few cents difference between upper and lower. And you can then balance those and find, hopefully for the individual player, that sweet spot that works for them.
0: Well, of course, too. we hope that the individual player has a good grasp of things like voicing and that so that they can... It would be little bit strange for, you know, someone who has no idea that they need to voice the upper notes different than the lower notes to demand these sort of repairs, right? I mean, you, you said uh, oh, d- yeah. discerning players. So do you get students into this kind of work or what, what stage does someone consider doing yeah, yeah. this sort of thing?
1: You know, I do lots of guest um, university master classes, for an example. And even starting as early as in the first or the second year, talking about fundamentals like how each note sounds compared to notes around it, how mm-hmm. the tuning is compared to notes around it, how the evenness of articulation is, the notes around it, really need to be part of the fundamental repertoire of learning to play the instrument. You know, Sean, it would be outrageous for most people to think, okay, well, if I were to play a simple chromatic scale on a piano keyboard and every note had a different intensity yeah, and I could only play, you know, short staccato on the G sharp, but... The A would have a much longer staccato. We would think it was outrageous. If a singer started singing and suddenly there were what, what we call breaks, we would think, why can't they sing evenly? Why can't they connect the notes? What's wrong with their technique? Exactly. And yet for a long time, you know, wind instruments... Um, have had a number of challenges and the clarinet has some unique challenges because of tuning by the twelfths. But if you look at flutes as an example, somewhere about 35 years ago, Albert Cooper, who was, you know, a flute maker at flute makers guild in London and then working in a, it was about a six by six foot shed out back of his house came up with the idea that flute scales were not accurate enough and also started working on head joints to change the sound and he basically revolutionized the scale of the flute and to the point that now most high-end flute players have adopted these modern scales and when they go back and they try and play the older ones and there are still some players who play the older ones usually heavily modified they have incredible problems trying to play with fluidity, with evenness, with great intonation, uh, and being able to make the sound without all these machinations of changing their embouchure for every note.
0: Yeah, I tend to think about the the, the scale of an instrument, or it should be anyways, kind of like a gradient. You know what I mean? Like it, it goes maybe light to dark, but you can't tell the exact point in which it switches, like it's sort of fading fading up. Like, of course, the high notes on clarinet sound different, but they shouldn't, there shouldn't be an immediate spot where they do.
1: Yeah. But you know, I think there's a difference between having flexibility. I think every good player wants to have flexibility where they can create their sound. They can create, you know, Mahler and Mozart are not the same. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So where there's flexibility in that, but the ability to easily connect the notes evenly with excellent pitch and with great control, I don't think is an unreasonable request for players to have. So when you have an instrument, you know, if there's 40 notes on an instrument, let's say, and I'm I'm just giving you a hypothetical number, and 36 of them are pretty good and four of them are not very good, I don't think people should be surprised when they don't win an audition. Mm-hmm. Because... Other musicians, you know, clarinet players playing for clarinet players, we all sort of accept, well, throat throat B-flat's not good. Well, okay, the Mozart concerto is a beautiful piece, but, you know, I guess my low F's going to be 20 cents flat. I don't think that other musicians accept some of the things that we have. And I've heard from many, many players of other wind instruments and string instruments and, and just musicians in general that they don't really understand why clarinets seem to have as many issues as they, they do. Um, it's an interesting problem. You know, the very fact we, we refer to our instrument as having a break is not normally something you would think of in music.
0: Yeah, I really don't like that term, actually.
1: <laughs> me, me either. And the same thing when people play, you know, going over not only the first register, but into the second where you're going from A, B, C, D... And those notes change in timbre and in control, and you have to kind of baby them along. I just started thinking a long time ago that, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to do some of those things? And so a lot of the research work that we've done, and then the development work, and now the manufacturing work, has been geared to try as best we can. And it's always a learning process, and I suspect always will be. You know, every day we're trying to get better at something. Um... To try and be something that as much as we can, we can take out of the difficulty of playing because it's hard enough for players to try and play beautifully without the instrument, you know, suddenly adding speed bumps. Just imagine you're driving a car and, you know, well, if you're going from 30 kilometers an hour to 35, there's suddenly a a bump that's different than when you're going from 35 to 40 or the same in the braking. We would all think that was ridiculous.
0: Well, and for students, imagine, you know, you're just learning and all of a sudden you're told there's a break in the range of the instrument. You're going to be terrified of it and you're, of course, you're going to hear it because you imagine that it's there. Yeah,
1: exactly. And, you, know? you know? There are, on every instrument, not just clarinets, but every every wind and string instrument, there are basis uh, in scientific work, you know, typically under the banner, let's call it, of acoustics, where we have limitations to what we can do. But... You know, throughout the history of the instruments, we've overcome any number of limitations. I mean, at first, we didn't have any keys. Then we added a few keys. Then we said, well, gee, we can add more keys. And then we started experimenting with the holes don't just have to be where your fingers can reach them, but they can be somewhere else activated by levers and spatulas and all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And as we've grown in those ways and we've become able to do more things – with manufacturing the instruments, I think it's helped players to advance. And I think that while there were many good players in the past, and you know certainly some great players in the past, the sheer number of high-level players today is meaning that in order for people to get playing jobs, I think that the requirements and the incredible uh, requirement to be precise And almost be able to reproduce anything at any moment for auditions as well as playing tests has reached new levels. So unless the equipment, whatever make, whatever model of mouthpiece, instrument, barrel, bell you use, allows you as the artist to be able to be comfortable, I think it's going to be a tough road. And when you asked in the beginning why we try and be so precise about what we do, that precision gives us the very basis For reliability where the results that a player has are easy to achieve or easier to achieve than maybe has been in some cases in the past utilizing some of this equipment.
0: You know, you raise such an interesting point, too, about, like, what is acceptable to other musicians, especially in sort of an audition situation. And it brings to mind two quick stories. And one is, I remember there was this 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 flute girl when I was in university in performance seminar, and mm-hmm. she, she played a piece. It was a solo flute piece. And after the piece, the, the, the pianist that was there, first thing she said was, you know, really great playing, but, like, next time, please tune. Because this person had perfect pitch, and to her, it was not a polished performance, <laughs> even yep. though she was by herself. I mean, the whole thing was you know, X amount sharp or flat or whatever it was at the time. And, and, uh, it just showed kind of a preparation that she could have put that extra step, you know, and yep. this, this same person, actually, I remember a different performer, there was a saxophone and it was, you know, clicking and Are clacking. Are you allowed to
1: mention those on a podcast for clarinet? <laughs>
0: it's, a, it's almost, I might have to edit this out. <laughs>
1: yeah, you're going you're to get some tough mail here. So.
0: Exactly. Exactly. A saxophone. Yeah. I shouldn't be mentioning that. But uh, the saxophone was clicking, as they you know, often do. Mm-hmm. And after the piece, she said, you know, what is that sound? I hear this constant, like, thwacking noise. I can't understand it. And all the saxophone players in the room were like, oh, that's just the instrument. That's just how it is. And she's like, no, no, I, I, I can't accept that. And <laughs> looking back, I, I thought she was maybe a little crazy at the time. But there's there's some point to that. Like it, it makes sense that someone with such a refined instrument as a piano would would find huge problem with that. And, and maybe we should, too.
1: Well, you know, things that detract from the performance, like mechanical noises and all, are are simply unacceptable, and in many cases, almost disrespectful to other musicians, because if you want to give your best performance, certainly whatever equipment you play has to be in the best condition possible, and there are many good recordings where you hear key clacks and noises and all kinds of things, and on some instruments, it's larger instruments tend to be even more prevalent than than smaller instruments, but... I think that, you know, again, if anything detracts from the performance, the nuance, if you're hearing metal on metal, chances are that the key is not working as efficiently as it could. Mm -hmm. So players need to deal with that. Now, having said that, you know, Sean, emergencies happen. People are playing a concert, a cork falls off, um, or a key gets bent, or a screw wears through um, whatever the material is that's acting as a silencer. Those kinds of things happen, and... Any performer has to deal with it as best they can. but that's completely different than not paying attention to making sure that whatever equipment you play is in the best condition possible. Uh, and usually things like key noises can be dealt with pretty easily by, in many cases, the player themselves and if not by you know, a technician that they they work with and, and trust. And I, you know I would say for the people who listen to your podcast, one of the best things you can try and do is find someone who you feel comfortable with, who seems to have the skills that you need to work on your instrument, whatever they may be, to help you play the best you can. And then routinely go and see that person to make sure the instrument's maintained at a high level.
0: So we had two listener questions come in and uh, they're actually the same. <laughs> the question was, is there anything you can sort of let us in on as far as new products or what you've got up your sleeve as far as anything coming out in the future?
1: You, you mean, will you be seeing the Bakun, you know, octocontra base clarinet and cocobolo wood? Exactly. exactly. The tuba mouthpiece anytime soon <laughs> or, or the new all wood grenadilla tuba?
0: Exactly. With flashing neon lights. I'm looking forward to that one in particular.
1: <laughs> so what you know, what I can say to address that question is um, we're a clarinet company. We've been incredibly fortunate to be able to work with many really marvelous artists and many people in the clarinet community and and we've grown significantly. Our interest is to be able to to take great care of clarinet players. And there are a couple of instruments in the moment at the clarinet family that we have not yet commercially made available. But what I can say to you and for your listeners is um, we have a great deal of development going on. And stay tuned. Keep your eyes open because I think you're going to see some very interesting additions to the Bakun family of instruments. Um, And I won't use words like Bigger ones and smaller ones, but you can use words like, you know, lower sounding and higher sounding <laughs> ones, um, coming, uh, from Bakun.
0: Where might be the first place that range might extend if you're,
1: you know, I've got to tell you that as a kind of a recovering bass clarinetist, because I played bass clarinet, uh, Professionally, here for a, a long time. Uh, that instrument has always been near and dear to my heart, and I've always considered it as an instrument that there's an awful lot of development work available to help improve the instrument. And I've spent quite a bit of time with some of the world's great bass clarinet players talking about, you know, what they like and don't like about all existing instruments. Um, kind of in a perfect world, their dreams and fantasies, and. I'd I'd like to help some of those come true, so I can tell you that you know we've been working on that. Um, I can tell you that you know a number of our artists who are solos all over the world end up playing uh, the Mozart a lot, and some of them seem to like playing on bassett. So I think you probably shouldn't be too shocked if you see one of those coming out in uh, the foreseeable future. Oh wow! And we deal with. Um, orchestra players all the time who need to play E-flat clarinet. So certainly um, that's a requirement that we want to help them uh, to fulfill. But having said that, we are really committed to trying to get it right. And so we go through a very rigorous development process, a very rigorous prototyping and testing sample process. We engage with the artists to do that. And with the artists um, using the prototypes under demanding circumstances to make sure that we either have it right or what do we need to do to get it right. And we take different data input from different people. So you may hear an instrument and test it and say, well, for me, this is a little bright. Someone else may try it and say, gee, I find that a little dark. So we try and get enough consensus around what's working for people to try and make the right product.
0: Absolutely. And something to look forward to for sure. And in Canada, of course, coming from Canada. we are, in fact, in Canada in
1: an absolutely gorgeous city, and we are delighted to have visitors. So, if any of your listeners want to come up, take a tour of the facility, see how clarinets are made firsthand, we're always delighted to meet folks and just give them a tour and kind of show them what we do.
0: Oh yeah, I checked it out. Everyone, it was really, it was really incredible, and such nice people there. So, is there anything else you'd like to share before we wrap up with the listeners, Maury?
1: Uh, I'd just like to say thanks to the clarinet community. You know, I think the sharing of information and podcasts like this and the way we can now access information on YouTube and other things has really been a revelation for people to be able to hear um, players of all different types and from all different countries and to exchange information. And I think that, you know, if we try and always be open-minded and say – how can we further the craft the craft of playing the further further the craft of making the instrument or repairing the instrument? I think we all benefit from it, and sometimes people you know get polarized in, "Oh, I play this instrument or I play that instrument." Uh, this is music, and I think that to really make music on a great level, it requires us to be open minded and it requires us to interact with other people, so insofar as we can do that, you know. Different instruments have all different kinds of features. What we make may be the best for someone. It may not be the best for someone else. You know, I encourage everybody to try everything. Be open-minded and find your voice.
0: Become the player you want to be. Absolutely. I love that. Where can people find you online?
1: www.bacoonmusical.com
0: Thanks so much for coming on the show today, Moria. I really appreciate the... Chance to speak with you here and the tour of the factory was just great.
1: Pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for calling.
0: Thanks for listening to the Clarinet Podcast. If you'd like to be eligible to win the Bakun Alpha Clarinet mentioned at the beginning of this episode, make sure to head to clarinet.com and subscribe with your email address to our mailing list. You'll also receive free content updates, exclusive coupons, and more directly to your inbox. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, D'Addario Woodwinds. Sanding, shaping, balancing. For centuries, mastering your instrument meant mastering these crafts too. But now, Didario is refining craftsmanship for the 21st century by refining their reeds and mouthpieces with the world's most innovative techniques, so you can spend less time sanding, shaping, and balancing, and more time perfecting your own craft. To learn more about the new era of craftsmanship from Didario Woodwinds, visit didariocom woodwinds.